0: Beyond Prisons, this is Jay. Today we will bring you part two of a two-part conversation with Devin Springer. In the first part of our conversation, we talked primarily about mental health response teams as alternatives to police contact for people undergoing mental health crises and the struggles in getting the state to implement such approaches. In this part of the conversation, we talked primarily about hip-hop scholarship and pedagogy as liberatory approaches to education, and we talked to Devin about his artwork and poetry. But before we transition into the discussion, Brian will read Devin's poem, On Radical.
1: My rhetoric is defined as radical, not because I shout or harm, but because I get to the root of truth, and somehow the truth always causes alarm. The intersectionality of my politics makes many uncomfortable. I've been told diversity should be a bad word, which is really easy to say when your voice is always heard, and your people's dream is never deferred. Do my politics offend you? Do you feel a loss of power? Can you not handle 400 years of oppression for just an hour?
2: I know that you're a hip-hop scholar and uh that you use the hip-hop or that you see hip-hop as a liberatory art mm-hmm. and I, I want you to tell us a little bit about how you became a hip-hop scholar and what do you mean when you say that hip-hop is liberatory
0: <laughs> so yeah my um my I have my initial in art um and specifically photography and i'm currently working on a, a grad program with a dual dual grad degree in african diaspora studies and art history looking at the history of hip-hop as a means of resistance and protest so way i view organizing and activism is it has to be a pedagogy it has to be a way of teaching it has to be education based all organizing and activism so I believe that, you know, in 2017, we have to look at alternative ways of educating that is really socialized educating, right? So it's education based on the common good, um, education based on socioeconomic relations and relativity where race and gender and class are included. So to me, hip-hop is the number one way to do that. So if the first step, in my opinion, to to socializing education and organizing is through hip-hop, and it's through teaching teaching based on what the students want to hear. And as Mm hip-hop is pretty much the number one most influential music form on the planet right now, and really one of the most influential art forms of the past century, it just makes sense to use it that way. So a lot of hip-hop music is about race and class and gender, and, you know, it tells stories, it tells histories. So what I propose is including including hip-hop in the Black History Month that we teach here in the U.S. very poorly. Um, and so a lot of my scholarship is just around how to include hip-hop in the classroom for it to be that liberation, socialized kind of pedagogy.
2: Absolutely. But, um you know, and uh, I, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and uh, you know, I, I love I love your Twitter, by the way. Oh, but thank you. one of the things that struck me about how you define hip hop as liberatory art is how much it reminds me also of the work of uh, Paulo Freire um, in Pedagogy yes, of definitely. the Oppressed, um, but also you know Augusto Boal uh, uh, in you know, and his theater of the oppressed. Uh, and for folks not familiar, yes. you know, the audience participates in the making of the play, mm-hmm. right? So it's the yes. idea that people participate and are creating uh, political and social change through this art, right? And um, in my thinking, and, you know, I could be way off here, and, you know, you can stop me if you disagree, but, you know, you, I think you said this already in terms of seeing hip-hop, um, you know hip hop pedagogy, but hip hop is practice, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. Um, or definitely. if we, you know, want to put this in Freirean terms, you know, he talks about reflection and action, right? And that yes. hip hop is challenging oppression and dehumanization, and that's the action part, right? Um, right. And it. So yeah, uh, that's it's interesting
0: you bring up Paulo Freire because a lot of my academic scholarship revolves around the work that he did. Um, specifically what I am in the process of really trying to flesh out and I did put it into action in the class that I taught last year at KSU um, is just how to apply Paulo Freire and Walter Rodney's pedagogy models to hip-hop or rather how to apply Mm hip-hop to them Um, so Mm -hmm. if you aren't familiar with one is Walter Rodney so he was just a revolutionary Pan-Africanist who he almost led a few different revolutions across different black countries around the world. But I, I work with his family here in Atlanta. Um, and one of the things that I've learned is his concept of a grounding session. So what he did while he was teaching in Jamaica in the sixties was created a concept of, of education and pedagogy called a grounding session, where you go to not the academic places, but he actually would go to the factory workers and to the Rastas of the community, those who were seen as culturally and academically inepotent and, for lack of better words, stupid or unacademic. And he would teach them these Mm -hmm. grand concepts through a grounding session, which is where you create a circle, and everybody's input Mm -hmm. is seen as equally valid, and they would throw different subjects on the floor and arrive at, at common goals and common conclusions based through this culturally relevant discussion circle. So Paulo Freire in Brazil did the same thing with his concept of the cultural circles, where you, he actually taught literacy to thousands of farmers through teaching, just like Valtorani did with the Rossos, teaching them literacy based on what they were interested in. So they were interested mm. in farming and agriculture. So that is where he began his education of literacy for them. Um, While Tarani saw the Rosses were interested in talking about the government and they were extremely upset with the Jamaican government so he taught them literacy and concepts of race and class through that common interest right Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so I tried to relate that to hip-hop because one hip-hop was founded on conversations about race and class from its inception hip-hop has been sort of this this buck at respectability and racism and white supremacy with people like Africa Mimbada and DJ Cole Herc coming in with this somewhat revolutionary um, theory being put forth in their hip hop music. So one, if students are already interested in hip hop and you can't really avoid that fact, you know, at this point in 2017, we all know students are interested in hip hop, um, especially black and Brown students. They're already interested in hip hop. It makes sense to begin the education process there at something that they're all commonly interested in. And then you, you know, what I chose to do with my class last year is for each lesson plan, choose a relevant music video or song and artist um, to talk about to kind of usher in the discussion and let it be led through the cultural
1: circle slash grounding circle pedagogy model. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm really interested in hearing sort of how that's played out in the classroom and, and sort of what you've been able to um, sort of bring out of your students with that. Can you talk a little bit more about the experience of bringing that work to the classroom? Definitely.
0: So um, both Frary and Walter Rodney stated that when, when an individual is being educated, if they cannot see themselves in the education material, they will not be interested. Right. So have you ever been in a class or someone's trying to teach you something and you can't see how it relates to your life whatsoever, so you just don't really care. Mm-hmm.
2: Um
0: so what I did was I taught from a position of not objectivity to the material of race and ethnicity, rather um personal social immersion inside of it. So a perfect example is we did a congress we had an entire conversation one day during the lesson on imperialism, US imperialism. And what I, what I was able to do was pick a few music videos um, from artists like um, Yasin Bey, Narsi, these Muslim Arab rappers whose music covers imperialism but is also done over a good hip-hop beat. And mm-hmm. so I was able to lead the conversation into that by first asking them, what did you think of the music video? Did you think he was a good rapper? What about his lyrics? And then once we got to the third question of what about his lyrics, the conversation just spread wide open. And people, first you had a lot of black students who would make connections to what he was rapping about in Palestine and Iraq to Atlanta, you know, about uh, police presence and violence and all these things. Um, And then the second part of it was we then had a differing of of opinion, which was welcome. Um, For example, we had one student who raised his hand and said i don't believe islamophobia is real i think that's just something people talk about on twitter and as uh, which you know these are college students <laughs> 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 to hear that in a <laughs> to hear that in a race and ethnicity sociology class from a college student was kind of bizarre but i stuck to the to the praxis and the pedagogy and i didn't really say much i just continued to let the students you know reason back and forth every opinion is respected although not agreed with and by the end of the the class what i do is just step in and kind of synthesize what all was said um to a common to a common point of of conclusion right so the best example is definitely that class on imperialism and they just really understood it and when he made the comment about not believing in hip-hop um another student i mean not believing in islamophobia Another student in the circle, you know, said, do you believe in racism? Oh, well, have you ever heard this song by such and such? It's a lot like the song we just listened to, but he's rapping Mm. about racism. And and do you not see how that affects Muslims the same exact way as racism affects us? And the student's eyes kind of lit up. And he, you know, you watch, if you've ever taught somebody something and you just watch it click on their eyes, it's like a very fulfilling moment (laughs) as as an educator. so yeah, and I that was one another really, really successful class with the hip hop pedagogy model was on gender and sexuality and gender based violence and patriarchy. I opened up with Unity by Queen Latifah, which is just you know, mm-hmm. if you've ever heard the song, it's like one of the best hip hop songs of all time. Um, mm-hmm. but I opened up with Unity by Queen Latifah, then I played a few songs by Eve, Nicki Minaj, um uh m c light and these songs where they making subtle or straightforward critiques of just the gender structure in general and Then I first let the women and femme um, identifying people in the class you know speak about their initial responses to the music videos and what it did was opened up this entire dialogue, and I then brought up quotes and we had readings from Angela Davis and Asada Shakur that coordinated with it. And they were able to make the connections almost instantly. It's as if they the music video was them watching their reading from Asada Shakur the night before. It was like them watching the music video was just watching that reading kind of playing out on the big screen. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just an extremely successful model because if the student is not, you know, moved to feel that they're related to the material, then they're not going to learn it as well and they're not going to be interested. And I call Mm -hmm. hip-hop a liberatory art form because every lesson that it teaches is something that bucks against the respectability of white supremacist capitalism. Even Mm -hmm. when it comes to the subject, you know, hip-hop talks about bad things like dealing drugs, even the societal reasons why, right? So we had an entire class on why hip-hop talks about gangs and drugs and gun violence and all these things which then was able to lead us into a conversation on systemic poverty and structural racism. Um, mm-hmm. So hip hop, I say hip hop is a liber- liberatory art form. And I more often say hip hop can be a liberatory art form because it's all about how you teach it and how you look at it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. I, uh, I, th- I think one of the most um, rewarding is you uh already pointed out, uh things about being an educator and uh incorporating, you know, music into your uh, into your class, into your pedagogy, okay. um, and particularly hip hop, um, is that, you know, kind of moment when you see students kind of like shift, um, you know, and it's it's a visible, you know, it's something that you can actually Definitely. see. It's tangible. Um yeah. Where they shift their thinking, and um, and that process is, you know, uh, it's incredible. I mean, I I've, I taught for you know almost twenty years, and uh, you know, I, at some point, it just occurred to me. One, you know, when when students were filtering into class, you know, just um, the whole exercise is like taking attendance. I mean, I, I abandoned that a long time ago. Like I stopped taking attendance. I'm like, all right, you know, <laughs> they're gonna have a reason. They're going to have a a reason to be here, right? And, you know, I guess some some universities force you to take attendance and blah, 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 whatever. We're not going to get into all of that. But, you know, I just started playing a music video every day, you know, and I created, Mm -hmm. I would create like playlists for, you know, each of my courses that, you know, some days the music video was just something I felt like freaking listening to when I got in the (laughs) class to get me in the zone. Some days it related to the material quite literally, and in other, you know, other times it was just something that was just, you know, it was just there, and let's see if they kind of pick up on it. And, you know, I had more than one, you know, colleague in the room next to me, uh, you know, asked me to turn it down. And, uh, you know, I I remember one summer just teaching in, um, you know, teaching this course, and I think I was playing, uh, was it Fight the Power uh, by Public Enemy? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just cr- I cranked that shit up. I cranked it up, <laughs> and the woman across the hall from me was just, it, she just comes over and she's like, "Do you mind turning that down?" And I just kind of looked at her, and you know, it's like class hadn't even started yet, right? So <laughs> I just, kinda, I did right. the opposite, and I I cranked it up even higher. Right. And it was just it very it was this passive aggressive shit that I did.
1: But mm-hmm. anyway,
2: um, you know, it I had it everybody, like the security guard who was, you know, at the front door came over to my class and I thought they were gonna come over and ask me to turn down the music. Instead they kind of stepped into the back of the class and started dancing. And <laughs> they right. were it was just this amazing, you know, kind of moment. And that's just you know, it not necessarily the most, you know, pedagogically significant thing that I, you know, um, example, but I think your point about being seen and heard, you know, and I ended up having a conversation with that security guard after class about why Mm -hmm. I was playing, you know, that particular song and how that related to the material. You know, here I am teaching a humanities course with everyone from, you know, Plato to you know, Machiavelli, and mm-hmm. how does, you know, public enemy fit into that, right? And it's just right. figuring that out and how students can see themselves, you know, it's not just be seen, but also heard um, within that space. And, it, I mean you get pushed back, people get freaked out at first, you know, your other colleagues aren't ne- necessarily on board with, you know, what are what are they doing over there? That that has nothing to do with, you know, the serious work that we do right. here. So right. Um, there's a lot of that nonsense, and I think that should be a, a completely, you know, we need a whole episode around that stuff right there mm-hmm. and how the Academy, you know, treats um, treats this. But, um, you know, I really Definitely. appreciate your, your comments on that. A, um and I'm cutting out a, a number of uh, other things here, but I, I would really love um to hear you uh to hear your thoughts about um the uh your work around your art, around your photography, um, around your writing. And the thing that I'm thinking of here is I, I read your piece on the Pulse Nightclub shooting and mm-hmm. uh, I I prepared these, you know, before the events of yesterday, before Mm -hmm. what happened in Vegas yesterday. Um, And one of the things that you said in in that piece, and I'm going to quote it here, was, but I take faith in Audre Lorde's words. We were never meant to survive. Too often Mm -hmm. we mistake survival for existence and existence for living. We become familiar with our oppression from several different angles because it becomes normalized. And for those of us Mm -hmm. at the intersection of several overlapping identities, the suffering becomes normality, right? And I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, um, oppression and suffering becoming normalized and how your work, you know, your art, Mm -hmm. your photography, your writing really challenges notions. Right.
0: So I think it's interesting that you brought up the Pulse article because I actually just reread that a few days ago, Um, was just reading over some of my old stuff and, you know, it's It was on my mind, but I think, so Audrey Laura's talking about the quote you mentioned. She says, you mistake survival for, what is it, survival for living or something Mm -hmm. along those lines, right? And I think that that summarizes so much of our life, you know, um, under white supremacy, as a person of color, you know, I'm a black, queer, Muslim person who lives in poverty in the South, So I think that mm-hmm. a lot of what what I call life, really on a on a very essential level, is mere survival, is mere existence, um, and the way that these structures intersect to to dominate and to work and to to control people, is that we then think that that survival is normal. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: we think that clipping coupons to afford food and to afford groceries is normal. We just think that it should be. We think that being afraid of police officers is just as normal, you know, and has always been that way forever. We think that these different things that other countries and other places would say that's fucking wild, that's inhumane, we just we think it's normal. And so what it really is is there's a few different things that my art work is about combating. The first one is normalization. Of oppression, right? And this is what I just explained: when you when your survival becomes normalized, when what should not be normal, what should not seem normal, like the idea that we've had so many mass shootings in the past decade, more than any other country combined, should not be normal. Mm -hmm. But there's people who read Mm -hmm. the news of what happened in Las Vegas last night and they didn't even bat an eye. You know, or Mm -hmm. we hear we hear about the six or seven hundred hundred unarmed person shot and killed. And we just, we're like, damn, that sucks. And we keep on going about our day because it's been normalized. Whereas in other countries, one person is killed by the police in the entire year and the whole entire country mourns. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first is normalization. The second is essentialization. So the idea or the theory that an oppressive structure is just essential to human existence. And you'll hear this a lot when people talk about racism, the response is always, oh, it's just essential to human nature. That's just human nature. Mm -hmm. It's natural, right? Or this essentialization, oh, well, if we don't have poor people, we can't have rich people, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem is that there's a a difference at all. (laughs) The problem is that there's an inequality at all. So essentialization and normalization. Um, The third and final one is biologization, which is a big fancy way of saying something is essential to biology. So this has a lot to do with gender and sexuality. A lot of people will use these faux biology-based arguments to say, like, to to prescribe patriarchy, right? To say, oh, it's just in our biology. Women are just naturally this, or femme people are just naturally weaker, or, you know, queer people is not, it's not biologically normal. This is et cetera, et cetera. So... Thinking mm-hmm. of those three things when I create my art I just want to challenge those every time I can. Um, and everything mm-hmm. that falls underneath there. So in a lot of my images I create through my photography, you'll see me uh I just did a recent series where I had fake blood pouring out of my mouth and it, I did some makeup makeup like I got punched in the eye. You know, it's a statement on on just distorting my body and, and showing my body in these kind of bruised and beaten ways at times. Or showing, you know, it's really hard to describe your own artwork. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Now that I think uh-huh. about it, now that I've never really said it out loud, but um, or showing, you know, I'll put multiple layers of myself on there. So some of my recent images, I've like used Photoshop to have four or five of myself in one room, or multiple of myself in one setting, and it's just all about questioning what's normal to us, right? People mm-hmm. saw these images of me with the fake blood and the and the the black eye that looked very real. And people liked mm-hmm. it on Instagram and kept scrolling, right? No one, not a single person texted me and said, was that real blood? Are you okay? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When,
2: there's,
0: when there's pictures of me and there's multiple of me in one picture and one of me is looking extremely depressed and the other of me is sitting on the couch reading a book and the other one looks angry and I'm doing this on purpose, people take it as normal. It just... So it's it's a commentary on on how normalized these things are in our society. They're normalized, essentialized, and biologized that I just so happen to look like I'm struggling in my pictures, and we can take that as art and move on. Mm-hmm.
2: So mm-hmm.
0: so it's it's almost satirical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the commentary that I'm making is definitely a satirical one in nature.
2: Mm-hmm. And I love then, the birds in background. Um, yeah. By the way, I'm, I'm I'm hearing the birdies
0: in the. Oh, can y'all hear that? I can go inside. <laughs> is <if> that <laughs> kind of a nice touch? I didn't know.
2: It's I didn't know. <laughs> no, it's so it's great. It's the at first I was just like, "What is that?" What I thought something was wrong with my phone, and I said, "Wait, what is that going on here?" And I was like, "Oh my god!"
0: I didn't know. Words.
2: Okay, cool.
0: I didn't know that y'all it's could hear hood. that. I'm sitting out. I'm sitting outside, and these two birds just started fighting. So I'm just. <laughs>
2: It's, oh, it's it's kind of lovely. watching it happen. It's lovely. <laughs> it happen. It's, it's lovely. We are not. I'm um, not mad. I am not mad. But um, that's yeah,
1: that's, I love it. it. That's
2: amazing. Um, um, it's
1: amazing. There is. Yeah, there's. You know, we we're kind of running out of time here. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, but there is one other thing uh, I wanted to ask you about before we get to the final question, um, and that okay. is about um, a piece you wrote on writer's block, which I thought was mm-hmm. really excellent. And it touches on a lot of things that Kim and I have discussed, um, you know, both on this show with other guests and privately uh-huh. um, with each other. And so the, the piece is on Off the Record, which is a publication that I think you edit for. Is that correct? Um, yes, on the editor-in-chief. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so just I, I encourage people to seek it out and, and read it. It's very good. Um, but in the piece, you talk about writer's block as a socioeconomic condition, not just struggling for inspiration. Yeah to create, but dealing with the pressures facing artists and writers uh, under capitalism and white supremacy in America. Um, In the piece you talk about the current market for freelancing uh, and for Uh political writers and expression and who it favors, who it doesn't favor, uh, when in particular opportunities arise for you. Um, I think for instance, in the piece you talk about how publications rush to you when there's deals with being black or with being clear uh, queer or being Muslim, um, mm-hmm. but the stable, better-paying, full-time staff positions at these publications, they're, they're not there for you otherwise. Um, and just to quote you, um, you wrote, you begin to feel like not just a writer, but a called-upon voice or a tokenized mouthpiece rented by some publication that will underpay you. And then there was one other piece that you wrote um, that I just wanted to tie in here really quick um, about your reactions to an exhibit you went to for a white artist named Daniel Arsham, um, and in that piece, you wrote, uh, "In modern history, black artists have rarely been allowed the artistic freedom of letting their work exist beyond the boundaries of the politics which confine them." And and this is still quoting you. And I wonder when our talent has been allowed to exist on its own, quietly growing muscles and birthing its own world in ways that do not demand grand statements on a particular socio political climate. Um, so I was wondering if you could just talk about these concepts a little bit more. I think they're incredibly important, um, these experiences and how they affect the way that you approach your work and your ability to create and the struggle to break free of, of this just to create. Um, I think you also put it, art that exists for beauty itself.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting. Those are actually two of my favorite articles I've ever written. And the one about writer's block specifically is kind of a new theory or a new territory I'm trying to build on and create. But it's essentially this idea that, you know, as a marginalized person, as a Black, queer, Muslim, et cetera, et cetera, um, much of our existence in both the writing world and the art world is simply for the appeasement of others. Um, Mm -hmm. whether Whether it's for the sake of, Some publication or some gallery who needs who like needs a quick black voice they don't seem racist or who needs a quick piece of black art on their wall right Um, or whether some current event happens and they're like oh well I guess now we should find you know a black writer to pay real quick and write about this it's all done for the appeasement of someone someone else's diversity quota you know um Mm -hmm. so when it comes to writer's block specifically i think we all we often like to think of writer's block as just something that just naturally occurs it's like oh i'm not inspired right now i have nothing to write about and it can go on for weeks where you just feel it's natural but i think for some of us it's much deeper than that i think it's a result of socioeconomic conditions um the first is that, you know, as a marginalized person, you know that publications are really only interested in your writing if you're writing about your identity and they can use it for a diversity quota and no longer be called racist or that mm-hmm. they're not uplifting certain voices. Um, publications like Teen Vogue or Afropunk or even GQ has recently approached me and. Their emails, when they email to me and ask me to write for them, normally specifically mention my sexuality or my race or my religion or some combination of the three, and they want me to write from that quote-unquote perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the second thing is the class aspect of it. So with, especially for people who freelance write for a living, we know that we don't get paid a lot, right? The average article, I just recently read an article that said the average um, pay for an article is $50. And for most people, you would have to write at least 15 articles in one month (laughs) to survive off of, you know, an average of $50 per article. Um, So it's, it's this idea that we're already devalued in the sense that we're just used for a diversity quota most of the time. But then on top of that, we then know that we have to navigate through the freelance market in such a way that we can sustain ourselves from it. And mm-hmm. the anxiety that that can take, the anxiety that that can create, just knowing that you're not going to get paid enough and you have to reason and bargain for the value of your work can create so much anxiety that it hinders the writing process altogether. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, there's a uh, Emerson, the famous, famous poet Emerson, there's a quote he says that beauty is its own reason for being. And I often go back to that. Because I think that's such that's so much white privilege to say beauty is its own reason for being, um, because I know that my art will never be on the walls of galleries because it's its own reason for being, right like when I go to an art gallery and I see these white artists who have pretty pictures of like flowers and you know landscapes, photography, and just these really pretty pictures that have no deeper meaning, I know that as like a black artist. Any art that I get in the gallery will be in the gallery because I'm making a statement on race and racism. Um, I've even, you know, approached galleries and asked to put art in the galleries and stuff that isn't making any real statements. It's just pretty beautiful art. And my art isn't allowed to be beautiful for the sake of just being beautiful. It has to be some kind of grand commentary on my race or my gender, my sexuality, my class, something of of those nature. And writing is the same way. So all of this kind of Mm -hmm. often combines into this this form of hypervisibility that's really um, destabilizing for a writer. And it makes, it just makes, you know, writer's block or artist's block. And it exacerbates the entire process of of the block to begin with.
2: Well, I got to tell you, I think uh, you were reading my mind because when I... um, (laughs) when i when I read those notes that uh that Brian had prepared in in advance of our interview, I was like, "Holy shit, that's you know like this is my life, you know this has been my life for the last you know I don't know how many years i um mm-hmm. anybody who's written a dissertation just knows how you know that takes you know a a chunk of you right, and right. I was writing right. under
1: unbelievable
2: conditions that, you know, when I look back on those now, I mean, it's like my sons had just been, you know, arrested. um, And, you know, uh, we were waiting to go, you know, to trial. We were waiting for pleas. We were, you know, it it was, things were still a mess. I just, you know, I had had to move. I was Mm -hmm. fighting my employer and, you know, in a lawsuit against my employer uh, for sexual harassment and and racism and whatnot. And I was having to write this dissertation on mass incarceration and reentry while my sons were going to prison, you know, and it's like, and and I found myself in this just strange place that was just like, I did not want to write. And for Mm -hmm. almost a year, I put the, you know, I put it aside and I was like, I can't do this, you know, and my partner, um, and, and he and I are still together, you know, kept encouraging me, and he's like, look, you have to pick this up, you have to get this done, you came this far, you know, and, and you need someone who's going to, you know, do that for you if you want to get through this entire thing, and I just did not have the energy, and once I got through it, I just have not written anything. Like, I've written a couple articles here and there. Um, I've had, you know, a number of people approach me and say, okay, when are you turning this into a book, or when are you going to do this, or when are you going to do that? And I'm like, you know, I I just don't have the fucking energy. I need to heal. And I've not been given the time or space to heal, as if you can ever heal from, you know, these sorts of experiences. I mean, white supremacy Mm -hmm. is not something that we're getting over, right? We're not going to, you know, a wellness workshop and we're going to come out okay if we just start, you know, chanting affirmations to ourselves in the mirror, you know. But this idea that it's ever-present and that you're being used basically because of your lived experience, right? And it's not to say that we don't want people writing who experience these things because we already have that, right? We already have people writing about us and we don't have us writing about us in many instances, but at what cost, right? And the inability to, you know, and this is something that's written about and critiqued regarding academia and I see some parallels here, the need to produce at a pace that is, unhealthy mm-hmm. and unrealistic and producing for the sake of producing and creating not for you know the sake of oh wow, this is really adding to this body of knowledge mm-hmm. here this is really expanding this body of knowledge, but you're producing for the sake of consumption and to check off some boxes like as you put it, um, you know a quota that needs to be Mm -hmm. met, a diversity quota that needs to be met, is something that I think, um, I like your thinking around this, and I would love to see, you know, and have us come back and talk about this certainly a little bit more. And then your points about, you know, your artwork. I paint. I've painted my entire life. I've shown in several galleries, Philly and New York and what have you. Mm -hmm. I've had shows in Baltimore and, and... Whatnot. And, um, you know, I paint abstract art, I paint flowers, I paint, you know, landscapes, I paint stuff mm-hmm. that's pretty because, you know, and I really started that process in earnest after my sons went to prison because I needed something beautiful in my life sure. and everything can't be shit. I mean that's like I I feel like I need to put that on a bumper sticker on t-shirts and really everything can't be shit all the time. Like I like you need you need a break and I, I I think about that so much in terms of, you know, other things that I've heard you say on Twitter or write about um, you know, in in your work regarding mm-hmm. self-care and activists and that's something that I've been living with and struggling with, which is why I'm often silent. And this year I really made a deliberate effort to not jump in on Twitter every time Mm -hmm. something is going down. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like, you know, that that tendency to expect activists to be every single time. Like, every single time. Like, there's never... there's never any reprieve, there's never any break, and there are people who do that brilliantly and have amazing things to say and can provide commentary for days, and I'm like, and I sit here and I read it without liking, retweeting, or commenting, you know, and I'm like, wow, I I just, I I can't right now, like, I just can't, Mm -hmm. I need to, you know, I can, note this. I'm engaged in this. I, you know, part of the resistance, I think, is also you have to be well and you have to take care of yourself in ways that, you know, that make you okay to keep fighting, right? Definitely, definitely. Fighting when you're, you know, fighting when you're, you know, broken and battered and when you're emotionally distraught and, you know, in a lot of pain, and I know that, you know, fighting can be a catalyst to keep you going, but I think also the prolonged effects of that, I I have a lot more to say about that, but I want to hear what you have to say about it.
0: So, I mean, so, yeah, I think that, I mean, it's essentially a conversation on self-care, right? And um, I think that we, or at least not we, the Internet talks about self-care a lot, but never actually list the best ways to do self-care beyond like doing a face mask and drinking some tea. You know what I'm saying? Like they, mm-hmm. it's always these uh-huh. very shallow representations of what self-care really means. Um, and that's not what self-care means. I mean, Audrey Lorde has an essay on self-care where she essentially says self-care is being a fucking adult. <laughs> like self-care uh-huh. is, is stepping back from the activism and organizing and doing what you have to do to survive and to live, whether that be cleaning your home one day or, or paying your bills or, you know, self-care is doing the things that secure your, your livelihood. So for me, mm-hmm. um, the past three years, I just spent a lot of time in the streets protesting. I was at every direct action possible, took a rest and all kinds of, you know, confrontations with the KKK, police officers, all that shit. And then this year in 2017, I just said, I'm not, I'm done protesting for a year. You know, I'm giving, that doesn't mean I'm not organizing anymore. I'm still doing Mm -hmm. tons of other things. But for me, my form of, I call it, I don't say self-care, I say being an adult. And my Mm -hmm. form of being an adult right now is understanding that the energy, both emotional and physical, that it takes to go and protest all the time I'm no longer going to give that this year. I just can't. There will there's someone else who will pick up that baton and do it for me. Um if there's 500 people in the street marching, I think if I'm not number 501, it will be okay this time. So, mm-hmm. I think when we talk about self-care, a lot of people confuse it for this very individualist kind of um
2: capitalist, shallow sort of capitalist. you know, yeah.
0: We've we've even seen corporations and clothing stores kind of capitalizing on self-care and selling self-care starter kits and, you know, the ultimate self-care pack. And it's just become this very individualist, commercialized thing. When in reality, self-care is doing what you need to do to secure your livelihood. And that's at the bottom bottom line, that's all it is. The purpose of self-care should be to alleviate your conditions temporarily so you can then continue to do more organizing and more work. It does not Mm -hmm. mean... You know, I'm going to be very selfish and individualist for a few days. It just means doing what you have to do at the bottom line. If you have, like you said, you've been on Twitter a lot less. If your form of self care was understanding, I need to step back from this parasitic platform for a few months or even a year, that's understandable because that's you securing your livelihood. And I think of, mm-hmm. you know, we often point at these revolutionaries. Way like we look at Angela Davis or Asada, Che Guevara and C and all these wonderful people and all we know about them is when they're writing about them doing revolutionary action. Mm-hmm. And we don't they never took the time to write down I don't know Chase what his favorite food was. I don't know if he had right. a favorite sport or I don't know what he maybe he'd like to play baseball or right, like there's these these small little mm-hmm. incremental things that he did to secure his livelihood that I will never know because he never took the time to write it down because it was never valued. Mm-hmm. And I want to mm-hmm. shift that culture. I want to shift that culture yeah. and I want my humanity to remain with me as much as possible. I never want my humanity stripped away from me because I pretend like I don't do these things and I, I'm not
2: participating mm-hmm.
0: in self-care. So I'm going to tell yeah. you what, on Twitter, for example, I'm going to tell you what my favorite food is you know, like, yes, mm-hmm. I just did a thread and I talked about capitalism and 20 tweets. Now you're going to hear 20 more tweets about me going to the spa or about me, you know, paying for all my friends to go and have dinner together. And you're going to hear about my commentary on Nicki Minaj and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we have this natural tendency to strip activists of our humanity. And all yeah. it does is just create the same exact cycle
2: that white supremacists yeah, and the people we're fighting do. Yeah. It, it flattens us out. And uh, that's something Brian and I have been talking a lot about. And, uh, yeah, I realize we're, you know, out of time. But um, we'd love to ask you one last question. Brian, do you want to ask?
1: Yeah, it's a question we ask everybody. Um, and that question is, what does abolition mean to you? What does abolition
0: mean to me? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I I would say, to me, abolition means abolishing... The first thing that comes to mind is prisons. I think that the bedrock of many of our problems in this current capitalist system are built on prisons um, and the need to create alternatives to them. But then in a larger, more abstract sense, abolition means to me... Eliminating and abolishing not only systems of domination, but the places where they intersect as well. Um, I think that abolition sounds like the most materially beneficial organizing strategy that I've heard of in a long time. Not simply reforming and talking about and dissecting things, but wanting to abolish the things that harm us.
1: I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, I think this is a really important conversation. And, um, you know, I hope we can definitely have you back in the future. Um, Where can, I guess, the the very last question I have for you is, um, where would you have people, you know, find your work, find you on Twitter? Can you tell us just real quick about that?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Half Atlanta, H-A-L-F Atlanta. I'm on Instagram, halfatlanta.jpeg. I'm the editor at offtherecord.com. You can read tons of my writing and some other great writing materials and video content there. Or you can go check out my artwork at urbansoulatlanta.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Devin. I really, really appreciate it. This was excellent. Yeah, definitely. Thank, thank you, thank you for Evan, having You've me. been
2: wonderful.